The deeper you go into the practice of shamatha, the more clearly evident it becomes that these three qualities of relaxation, stillness, and vividness are not only sequential, and in a very meaningful way they are, that we first emphasize relaxation out of that stillness and out of that clarity, that's quite clear, and that we shouldn't invert those, at least all kinds of problems. But it also becomes evident that these are synergistic. The more deeply you cultivate them, then you find that the more composed, the more still your mind is. That's actually very relaxing. And the mind, as the mind becomes clearer and more and more vivid, everything becomes more interesting, and that helps maintain the continuity of attention. We don't get bored, we don't get spaced out. So when you kind of slip into that wheel of shamatha, where these three qualities are all accentuating, nurturing, reinforcing each other, then you're really on a roll. But in a similar fashion and in a broader context, we have these three higher trainings of ethics, samadhi, and wisdom. And once again, ethics is the foundation. If you don't do anything other than that, you've done something really meaningful. If you skip that, whatever else you do doesn't, isn't meaningful. You develop all the samadhi and wisdom you like, but if you don't have ethics, you've got nothing. Right? And so, and likewise for samadhi, what, what, what Buddha was so clear, that the stronger your samadhi, then the more powerful your wisdom can arise. If your samadhi is weak, your, um, your wisdom is going to be very sporadic and quite shallow, actually. It cannot be sustained. So there's a very clear sequence there. And it's not doctrinal. It's not simply a matter of dogma. It's really radically empirical. This is the way it works. That the stronger ethical foundation, the stronger samadhi, the stronger the samadhi, the stronger the wisdom can arise. But now we find again in this triad that it's reciprocal. And that is, as you develop your skills, your faculties of mindfulness, of introspection, of discerning awareness, this, of course, enables you to be far more, you can fine-tune your ethics, really become, you know, the ethics becomes very, very fine. And then likewise, as you develop your wisdom, this can enhance the samadhi. And that's the point that I'd like to kind of venture over into now as we are approaching our third week. And that is how we can... um, nurture nurture and support our practice of shamatha by delving into the realm of vipassana right and especially in between sessions for most of us we're spill, most of our 24 hours of the day is spent in between sessions and not in formal session not many of you are probably yet at practicing formally 13 hours a day so until then then we should be giving a lot of attention to how we can enhance, uplift, elevate the whole quality of our awareness in every way, in terms of the heart, our discernment, discerning mindfulness, and so forth, in between sessions. Now, if that's true during our during our uh, eight-week retreat, then all the more will that be important when the retreat's over. If we just really get good at sitting on the cushion, but then we go home and then you know, we're no longer able to meditate six, eight, ten hours a day, then how relevant was it? after the retreat, which is kind of like during retreat, after retreat. Eight weeks, eternity. (laughs) (laughs) And so there's a very juicy, very, very concise uh, discourse. It's one of the briefest discourses the Buddha ever gave. And it seems one of the most potent because the person, it was a one-on-one it was like, you know, the Buddha was not having a weekly interview. He just gave this person one interview. One interview. 
the person asked him three times for an interview. I want an interview. I want an interview. And then finally the Buddha said, on the third time, he said he saw the time was, time was ripe. And he said, okay, here's your interview. And then he gave him this instruction. You ready? Some of you know it's coming. Prepare yourself, though. Okay? The fellow who was asking for the interview was named Bahia. And here is what the Buddha said. Bahia, you should train yourself thus. In, the refer- in reference to the scene, there will be only the scene. I'm going to give a tiny bit of commentary. There will be only the scene. Let there be just the scene. That is, just focus on what reality is dishing up to you, rather than conflating it with all your conceptions, your superpositions, your judgments, categorizations, associations, and so forth and so on. All this stuff we throw on, consciously and un- unconsciously project upon reality. Be there. Be quiet and see what reality is dishing up. So you should train yourself in this in reference to the scene. There will be only the scene. In reference to the herd, only the herd. In reference to the sensed, only the sensed. That's referring to tactile perception. In reference to the cognized, only the cognized. That's referring to mental perception and what we mentally perceive, thoughts, images, and so on. That's how you should train yourself. When for you... There will be only the scene in reference to the scene, only the heard in reference to the heard, only the sensed in reference to the sense, only the cognized in reference to the cognized. So when you're seeing these four domains of experience clearly, without conflating what reality is giving with what you're projecting upon it, when that happens, then, Bahia, there is no you in terms of that appearances. You're not going to find yourself there in appearances. There is no you in terms of that. There is no you. There is no you in terms of that. When when there is no you in terms of that, there is no you there, objectively. When there is no you there, you are neither here nor yonder nor between the two. So the cognize, of course, includes awareness itself, not just the images and appearances arising to the mind. So within the whole field of appearances, and he highlights, highlights the visual, auditory, tactile, and the mental, and then our awareness of them. When you see simply what is there, then you'll see that you are nowhere to be found. You as an individual, you a person, you an ego, a self. Nowhere to be found in the appearances. Nowhere to be found in the awareness of the appearances. Therefore, you see there is no evidence of you being there amidst the appearances. There's no evidence of you being here in the nature of awareness. When there is no you there, you are neither here nor yonder nor between the two. This, just this, is the end of suffering. Bahia heard that Dharma talk that I just gave you. And within a matter of moments, he became an arhat. He went from ground zero to arhatship with one Dharma talk. Would you like me to read it again? (laughs) In case you're a bit slow on the uptake. (laughs) Okay, the difference is I'm not a Buddha and you're not direct disciples of the Buddha, so maybe it doesn't work quite so well. But that was his discourse. I find it truly breathtaking. And it's very relevant to what we're practicing now. Between sessions. Between sessions as you're doing whatever you're doing in the four postures. I would suggest really turn on the lights. 
turn on the lights of awareness. And when you're attending to, to bring your attention to the visual domain, just let the visual domain present itself to you without conversation, without chit-chat, without interrupting, without superimposing, without projecting anything upon it. So direct your attention sometimes to the visual domain. This is a nice place to do it. Right? Direct your, your, your awareness to the, the auditory domain. In sounds, let there be just sounds. To the tactile domain, as you're walking, and just feeling these sensations, these somatic sensations, tactile sensations, rising and rising. Attend to them. And, of course, attend to the space of your mind, the thoughts, the images, but also the awareness. The awareness itself, of course, is also occurring in the domain of the mind. And in each case, attend closely. And see if you can overcome our very, very common cognitive imbalances of hyperactivity and deficit. So very brief commentary. I'm eager to get to the meditation. But we all know about ADHD. It's very obvious. Attention hyperactivity. We know that. That the attention is overactive. It's excited. It's agitated. It's fragmented. Sprayed all over the place like a cascading waterfall. Like that. We all know that very well. And we also, we also know that's exhausting. Draining. We can't keep it up all the time. So after a while, we just get tired, fatigued, drained, and then the awareness tends to enfold into itself, to withdraw, to sink, and that's called laxity, dullness, falling asleep. We all know that very well. And I'm suggesting there's a strong parallel here in terms of cognitive balance, and that is in cognitive hyperactivity. I think we've all experienced this. See whether the shoe fits, whether this corresponds to your own experience on occasion. And that is cognitive hyperactivity. We get so caught up in our expectations, our beliefs, our assumptions, our preconceptions, our transference, our labels, our imagination, that it's obscuring what's actually happening. We just don't see it. And we, are, we have all these projections, all this conceptual stuff that we project, consciously or unconsciously. And then, of course, we conflate what we projected with what reality is dishing up. The actual appearance is arising to our senses. That's delusional. I mean, in extreme cases, it's called schizophrenia, psychosis, where a person has no ability. I, I met three people a long time ago, not recently, but three women who were schizophrenic, and they had extremely limited ability to distinguish between what their mind was conjuring up and what was reality was presenting to them. And none of them were happy. They were all actually desperately unhappy and had no sense of rest, no sense of peace, no sense of stillness whatsoever. The mind was constantly agitated, tumultuous, churning out. I sat up all night with one of them, literally all night, and she talked the whole time. Somebody had to be with her because we were afraid she would commit suicide, and so it was Tang, I was it, because I was there in the Dalai Lama's doctor's home. But it was amazing just to see how her mind was just spinning out noise, and then there was, no, there was no barrier between what her mind was spinning out and what was coming out of her mouth. So it was just a torrent of speech, but incoherent, very unhappy, and completely delusional. Okay. So it's, it was helpful to me, I was very young, I was 21, 22, to see there is a mind that is really profoundly dysfunctional, and of course delusional, and therefore truly unhappy. So we're not there, I don't think anybody is listening, is in that state happily. But she's not another species, and I'm sure she's not that way now. I think 
she, I think she, was, she received the treatment she needed. That was a long time ago. But we can see the spectrum. Right? We can see the spectrum. There's no cutoff point. And so that's it. Where we are just so caught up in our imaginations and projections that we, that we conflate that with reality. And that's what we're seeing. But of course, as soon as there's projection, the projection, the conceptual overlays on appearances, on sensory appearances, highlight those projections themselves. But then they, they obscure. Like if cloud comes over the sun, then you can see the clouds very clearly. But you can't see the sun. And so when we are engaging in this conceptual cognitive hyperactivity, where we're spewing out all these projections onto appearances, of course, they obscure the appearances themselves. And so the appearances may be coming in. We have maybe have perfectly good vision. Our hearing is perfectly fine and so forth. But because of the cognitive overlays, uh, we cannot see that which is in plain sight. You know, cannot see that which is plain sight. I've given the example earlier of like fathers 100 years ago uh, who would be raising their children, maybe half girls, half boys, and simply assuming none of these girls are fit for higher education. They're not up to it. But a boys, well, you know, boys, carry on the family name. Carry on, carry on. And there it is. We all know now, it's so obvious, it's not even worth saying, but the girls are smart as boys, just gen generically, you know, yes. And yet they couldn't see it. Because of these stereotypes they were carrying about the limitations of women, there it is, your own girls who you love, and you just can't see that maybe, actually maybe they should be the one that goes to Harvard. Or to, or to Oxford, Cambridge, and so forth. You can't see it. And yet there it is. They're doing extremely well in school. They're curious. They're precocious. They're intelligent, creative, and so forth. You can't see it. No, but you apply that to cooking. Apply that to childhood, because that's what you're naturally good at. You know. So it's a silly one. It makes us chuckle now, but nobody's chuckling 100 years ago. Women couldn't vote. Nobody's chuckling. It's amazing. So it's very easy kind of chuckle at, at the kind of cognitive deficit disorder that but most of the world suffered from a century ago, and then we really should get sober. What are we individually and generically? What are our blind spots now? Where hopefully our civilization will survive long, long enough that 20, 40, 50 years from now they'll look back and they'll be chuckling at us, slapping their heads like, you've got to be kidding. You know? What are we not seeing that's in plain sight? So this is what mindfulness is for. Discerning mindfulness to let us see what is there and not, number one, let us see what is being presented to our various senses, including very much our mental perception, the existence of which isn't even acknowledged in modern cognitive psychology. It's not there. I studied cover to cover a 500-page introduction to cognitive psychology. Never once was mental perception even acknowledged. Never once did introspection play any role whatsoever in their investigations of the mind. Not once. And I looked at this as, you know, a person who had been for a, monk, a Buddhist monk for 14 years, and I thought, why are they not seeing this? Amazing. Why is introspection not front and central in the scientific study of the mind? Amazing. How can they not see that? Okay. Central to this is the shamatha supporting the Vipassana, and then we'll go into the practice. 
what I've been invited you to do, and I'd like it to be a silent session now, so I'm going to take off my the microphone and so forth when we start. But there is something, a key ingredient. We already know it, but I want to highlight it this time. And that is, if I attend to another person, any person, doesn't matter, any situation, but like a person, and it was, when I attend to that person, my awareness is still. It's clear, it's attentive, it's discerning, but it's still. The person comes in, and I'm not already mentally talking. I don't already have an agenda. I don't already want this and hope for this and expect this and judge this and have all these preconceptions I'm about like a big dump truck to unload on the other person. But the mind's like this. It's still clear, bright, discerning, and attentive to the person coming in. If I can sustain that quality of stillness, that's very intelligent, as intelligent as we can be, but still, then I might actually see the other person. And I might actually hear the other person. And you see and hear them from the heart. I'm not speaking poetically or ushigushi here. That you sense them from the heart at a deeper level than just what is the data coming to your eyeballs. You know, you're sensing in a deeper level, an intuitive level. How is this person doing? You know? And so that stillness. So we practice where it's easy where there's not a whole lot of commotion, where it's relatively simple. And that is we settle body, speech, and mind in the natural state to the point of stillness, and then we direct it to this non-conceptual space, where there's no conversation within the somatic field. It's not conceptual. There are no thoughts, there are no mental images there. It's a non-conceptual space. <coughs> and then we simply attend to what's arising Maintain the stillness, sustain the stillness in the midst of the fluctuations, the coming and going of the breath. And then, and this will be the last comment, then when you come off the cushion and you're doing what you're doing most of the time, and that is not being on the cushion, then sustain that stillness. Sustain that stillness. As you're going about the most mundane tasks, sustain that stillness. The fact that we're generally not speaking, that helps a lot to sustain the inner stillness. Maintain that stillness. And in the scene, let there be just the scene. In the herd, just the herd. The sensed, the tactily sensed, the tactily sensed, and in the mentally perceived or cognized, just being aware of what's coming up. And then you might just drop in, like a little drop into a potion, a little drop of a question. In all these appearances, am I anywhere to be found? including the appearances, of course, of what is up close and personal. Thoughts, images, desires, memories, emotions, and so forth. When I'm observing them, I'm not identifying with them. When I observe them, do I observe them as something that's me? Are any of those me? The awareness that's observing them, is that me? So we attend to these, these four fields especially visual, auditory, tactile, and mental. And within that field of appearances and the awareness of the appeals, the awareness of the appearances, attend closely to the question, is there anything here that's arising in terms of appearances and the awareness of the appearances that's presenting itself as me? Am I to be found? Am I to be found? Me, the person. Am I to be found 
anywhere among these appearances or the awarenesses of the appearances? Or are the appearances empty of me? The awareness of the appearances, over here, empty of me. In which case, I'm not out there, and I'm not in here, and I'm not in between. And that's the end of suffering. How is that? <laughs> no more yet. Okay, just, want, just wanted to check. Good. Isn't it cool? This is so basic, but it's so, I don't know, blows my mind. It really does. It really does. And I've known about this for a long time, but the freshness of it doesn't wear off. Truly astonishing. Please find a comfortable position. We'll start, and it will be a silent session. Just some very brief comments. Broadly speaking, now that we're going into this vision of the Gulupa and the Kagyu tradition, kind of the classic lumbering tradition of Gulupa and the Mahamudra, deeply animated, in the Kagyu tradition, and then of course during the latter part of, the, of our retreat, we'll be going this segue of this transition, or this integration of Mahamudra and Dzogchen. You know. Within this field now that we are venturing into during these eight weeks, we'll be, we're drawing from two approaches to spiritual practice and using Dzogchen terminology. One is Tzu-Jie, the other one is Tzu-Me, effortful and effortless. Effortful and effortless. And uh, you might immediately say, well, tell me about the latter one. <laughs> Especially being older, you know. When I was in my 20s and 30s, effortful sounded pretty good. Now, Oh, that really sounds really good. <laughs> well, the effortful is recognizing that there's a lot of room for improvement in, for example, on our minds. You know, we, we could be better. We could be further along the spectrum between psychosis and perfect awakening. We could be moving more in that direction, modifying, purifying, transforming, training, developing, cultivating. That's so to say that's what effort and animate the worthwhile. There's really no substitute for it. But that's not the whole picture. And the other picture is, within this yang-yin complementarity, is the tsul-meh, the effortless, where we're simply being present with whatever is coming up. And that too, it's as important as the yin is to the yang, and the yang is to the yin. It's the complementarity there, uh, which is really quite, quite exquisitely beautiful. And so we're in this current now, of integrating these two, but that means we'll highlight both. 
And so in the kind of theme that I emphasized this morning, it's emphasizing more the simply being present with, you know, whatever's coming up, present with. And so in the midst of the myriad type of thoughts, some of them very probably afflictive, a bit neurotic, disturbing, agitating, unpleasant. There's that whole range of thoughts, emotions, desires, and so forth. In the midst of that, um, there's good reason on occasion to get in there and fix it. You know, think different thoughts, adopt a new perspective, get out of that. You know, do something good. But there's also good reason just to rest in your stillness while that's happening, and let them resolve themselves, because they do. If you really learn how to maintain that stillness, that clarity of discerning mindfulness in stillness, then these afflictive thoughts come up and they're orphaned. They're orphaned. They don't, they're like a parasite that's not finding a host. And even if it's a, a parasite like a bacteria, like a, like a terrible virus or bacteria that could kill you, if it doesn't find a host, it's not toxic. A virus, the most lethal, a bacteria, the most lethal in a vial, a sealed vial, is not poisonous. You're not poisoning anybody. It's isolated. And so, as these come up, insofar as you can maintain that stillness, and you can be aware of them exactly as the Buddha was saying, in the mentally perceived, let they be mentally perceived, you will see them come up of, of their own accord, and you didn't do it, and you will see them dissolve themselves of their own accord, and you didn't do that either. That's kind of good. So stillness in the midst of emotions of the mind, and allowing the whatever is coming up, simply to release itself. But then likewise, as we're about to get off the cushion and venture into the main part of the day when we're not formally practicing, insofar as you can maintain that kind of stillness in the movements of appearances at large, as you're walking, the movements of appearances, tactile sensations arising, where else? In the tactile field. And sounds arising in the auditory field and visions, appearances, visual appearances arising in the visual field. And all of these arising in a coherent and interrelated way. These are not just chaotic, of course. There are regularities, patterns to them. In the midst of all these motions, if you can maintain that stillness of your awareness, then you may be still, your awareness may be still, even while there appears to be motion. Because you're still, because you're not identifying with emotion, you're not cognitively fused with emotion, the movements, the shift, the changes in your body, visual appearances, auditory appearances. Since you're not identifying with them, you're not going for a ride. Since you're not identifying with them, they're in motion and you're not. Your awareness isn't, your awareness is still. So insofar as you can maintain that stillness throughout the course of the day, even when your body appears to be in motion, uh, that would be interesting. That's good. So let's continue practicing.